The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Alice Hearing, and this is Ukraine The Latest. Today, we'll discuss the latest tactical and strategic updates from across Ukraine, the situation in the Donbass region, and the action or inaction of EU leaders in relation to the crisis. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's April 8th, day 44, and today I'm joined by Roland Oliphant, The Telegraph's senior foreign correspondent, Joe Barnes, our Brussels correspondent, and Francis Stanley, our assistant comment editor. I started by asking Roland for the latest updates. The big thing this morning, of course, is this horrific um, cluster missile attack on the train station in Kramatorsk, which is one of the main towns in Ukrainian-held East Ukraine. Um, It happened at about 10.30 local time this morning. Uh, The mayor says there are about 4,000 people waiting there to evacuate. Local authorities have um, basically asked as many people as possible to get out of the region because they're um, there is likely to be a very large battle in the Donbass in the next week or two. Um, so you have about 4,000 people queuing at this station. About 10.30 this morning, um, a missile or two missiles dropped a bunch of cluster munitions on them. The current figures are 39 killed, 87 injured as of um, as of about an hour ago, or two hours ago. Um, that number is, I mean, I think the number of deaths is likely to rise um, because the, the mayor of Kramatorsk has... Uh, just told Ukrainian television that the hospitals can't cope. We've got a lot of people with lost limbs. Um, Surgeons are trying to to work on several people at a time. Um, That, to me, that, to me, says the death toll is going to rise. Almost all of these people, as far as I'm aware, all of the people who've died in this attack are civilians. What do you think the implications of this are? Um, Implications? I mean... It's it's to me impossible to imagine that this was some kind of mistake. Um, the evacuation effort from Donbass has been going on for really intensified over the past few days. The railways are absolutely key to that. Um, everybody, Russian intelligence, must have known that there were very large numbers of civilians at the railway station. That railway station, I have been through, I don't know, countless, dozens of times myself. It's just the civilian passenger station. Right? Is, there's no way you can classify that as a military target. Um there is no way they could not know that was full of civilians. To me, it looks deliberate. Um, and the question is, why? Why are you trying to, to kill civilians? Are you trying to prevent the evacuation? Because for some reason, you want civilians in the region, perhaps um, as a kind of human shield um, to, to, to kind of deter the Ukrainians from using heavy weaponry in, in defense or, or for some other kind of reason. I don't really understand um, that logic maybe that's a failure of my imagination um but to me it it is simply yet as if there was any doubt um it's clear to me that you know the kremlin is pursuing a a total war basically and the distinction between combatants and civilians is uh, apparently from the russian high command's point of view quite blurred i mean it's quite clearly like the scenes are on social media absolutely horrendous um, but something that we've also seen is that on on the side of the missile, um, it says for the children. Um, can you explain explain that, Roland? Yeah. So you look. I mean, 
everyone will know who's seen kind of, you know, pictures from the Second World War. Operators of heavy ordnance tend to write on shells and things. You know, we used to do it. You know, this one's for Adolf kind of thing. Russian propaganda says that um, Ukrainian fascists kill children. And in fact, any time there's an atrocity or or you remember the... Um, uh, the hospital that was bombed in uh, in Mariupol, the, the, the drama theatre full of refugees that was bombed in Mariupol. Um, Russian propaganda straight away just blamed that on the Ukrainian fascists. Um, so presumably, from the point of view of the, the Russian servicemen who were loading that missile, they were, they were taking revenge on the Ukrainian fascists for the children they killed. The irony is, I mean, <laughs> sick irony, is um, there's at least four children in the confirmed um, fatalities from this attack. Um, you know, so I mean, some some people will try and frame that as, oh, the Russians are saying we uh, we definitely kill children. Um, I would view it as uh, an expression of the kind of parallel reality um, that Russian propaganda has created. What exactly is the line that Russia um, is trying to say? Could you sort of explain a little bit more about um, the the reasons behind saying for the children but also a sort of the wider reasoning yeah i mean i mean i mean so it, it, it's a narrative um that, that is repeated again and again and again um in russian propaganda that the ukrainians shell children they bomb children uh, one of the justifications for this war being put out in russia is the idea that ukraine is entirely responsible for the the eight years of war um that preceded this in the donbass region um you know ukrainians bomb children um, therefore, you know, here is here is our revenge. And there's, there's also kind of dark, very dark kind of, um, I don't know, implications. I, you can't say it's definitely deliberate. I mean, the, the, the theatre that was bombed in Mariupol by the Russians, where there were about 300 civilians sheltering at the time, had the word children written in very large letters outside so it could clearly be seen... Um, by Russian jets from the air. The idea was like, well, don't bomb us because this is a civilian target. It was ignored. Um, it's it's a very macabre, horrible kind of, um, I don't know, kind of message, really. Is this the first instance that we've seen sort of that writing there? Like, it's very clearly sort of Russian propaganda that's actually sort of been written onto the missiles. Is this the first time we've seen that, or have there been other examples? I mean, it's the kind of look, it's the kind of thing that 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 soldiers write on bombs and missiles, right? You know, this one's for the children. Um, in 2014, you used to see sometimes the, the separatists on the pro-Russian side writing things like, "This is for Odessa," um, because there was a big fire in Odessa where a lot of um, pro-Russian activists were killed. Um, which was which became a you know a symbol again of so-called Ukrainian fascism um, and so on. So it's uh, it's something that I think happens in every war. It certainly happened in this war. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see um, you know Ukrainian servicemen writing something like you know in revenge for Mariupol or something or this one's for Putin um, on their own shells. Francis, do you want to come in on this? I think you've been looking a little bit about um, Russian propaganda as well. Yes, I'll just reiterate what Roland was saying, that we, the, the, the writing that's been written on this missile uh, reiterates the power of the propaganda machine within the Russian army and perhaps within Russia more generally. The only other remark I would make on, on the question of Russia in relation to this is some very interesting comments made by Dmitry Peskov, who's Vladimir Putin's spokesman, um, he has admitted in an interview that Russia has sustained, quote, significant military losses, um, calling their deaths a tragedy. 
Um, this is one of the very few examples that we have seen where Russia has admitted the scale of, of their losses so far. Um, the numbers, of course, are at this point uncertain, but we know it's many thousands killed. And uh, we, we, what we don't know is the extent to which this is being reported in Russia. But I think it's significant that um, the, 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 the Russian and the spokespeople and, and, and the Kremlin generally are, are now having to admit uh, that these that these uh, losses are taking place, um, but interestingly, of course, in, in the same interview, he was not willing to uh, admit to any atrocities committed by by the Russian soldiers. Um, instead, remarking, "quote We have significant losses of troops, and it's a huge tragedy for us." Um, so clearly, um, the the honesty portrayed by the uh, by the Kremlin, if that's the right word, only extends so far. Okay, so just on the back of that, um, over the past week, we've seen what our defence and security editor, Nichols, has described as reconstitution across Ukraine and the Russians withdraw from the capital in the north um, and a move to focus on the Donbass. Um, So could one of you, perhaps Roland, describe to us what the Donbass is like, um, the strength of feeling there as well? Right, yeah, the the Donbass, um, it's basically a a Russian portmanteau word. What what, what would you call it? Anyway, it stands for the the Donetsk Coal Basin. Um, So it's a geological term. It's a coal mining area. um, You know, it basically means the Luhansk and Donetsk regions of southern and eastern Ukraine. It was where the the original war began in 2014. Um, It's, you know, quite a heavily Russian-speaking region. It was hit very badly by deprivation um, with the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, And it was where Russia basically tried to curate a separatist counter-revolution um, in the wake of the 2014 um, uh, pro-European Maidan revolution in Kiev. It had a, a degree of success. Um, it sparked a war, um, which went on for about a year, um, ended ended essentially in a Russian victory, but, but a bit of a stalemate. And the situation was, OK, there are going to be these two breakaway puppet republics called the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, um, uh, which... Under the an agreement called the Minsk Peace Agreement, was were meant to be reintegrated into Ukraine. Um, that never happened, uh, basically because Ukraine and Russia had completely different interpretations of how this this very short one page peace deal should be implemented. Because um, the Ukrainians suspected that the real Russian plan was basically to use these regions as a as a means to euthanize Ukrainian statehood, a way to control Ukraine from within. Um, in the run-up to the current war, one of the key Russian demands was um, you do this, you do Minsk now the way we want it done. Um, and the Ukrainians said no because what you're asking to do is, is politically impossible and it's, it's suicide for the government and it's suicide for, uh, for Ukrainian sovereignty. Um, so that, that became, uh, you know, Donbass became the excuse for the current war. I think it's important to emphasize that it's an excuse. If you look at the huge scale of this invasion, the way they went for Kiev at the beginning uh, with, with a really massed force, the objective, I think is quite clear, is it's a war of conquest. The idea is to conquer all of Ukraine, um, perhaps to destroy the entire Ukrainian state. Um, nonetheless, Donbass remains the official uh, war aim, and the Russians have basically been defeated at Kiev. Um, and, and as you were saying, they are currently apparently appear to have decided to say, OK, we're, 
we're going to concentrate on a much smaller, more manageable objective. It's going to be Donbass. We're going to bring the troops we had in the north around Kiev around. Uh, we're going to reinforce our, our forces in the east, and we're going to attempt an enormous pincher movement to cut off and destroy the, uh, the Ukrainian forces concentrated there. And, and that, that's the context of this evacuation that was going on at the station where the missile landed. Ukrainian authorities are trying to get as many civilians out of that area um, now uh, before the battle really kicks off. Yes, it's really important to get that context around this horrific, horrific attack today. Um, you've also written in today's paper about the Russian paramilitary groups that are going into the area. Could you talk a bit more about that? Oh, yes. Yeah, so um, this was the reappearance of the Rusich um, task force, Rusich, or the the Rusich, what do they call themselves? Um, the Rusich Sabotage Reconnaissance and Assault Battalion or, or something like that. So um, they're, they're an interesting group. They they appeared in 2014 at the beginning of the war, um, the last war we kind of find ourselves talking about now. Um, when that war began, both sides ended up fielding kind of irregular battalions um, in one way or another. The Russians ended up sending in their conventional forces as well. Um this was one of the irregular battalions that showed up on the Russian side. It was founded by a couple of uh, basically self-declared neo-Nazis, white supremacists um, uh, from St. Petersburg. Um, it, it recruited from amongst those circles. Um, it became quite notorious in Ukraine. They were involved in a, in a particular, particularly nasty ambush um, of Ukrainian troops. Um, they've been invested. They're considered terrorists in Ukraine. Essentially, they're also basically Nazis. Um, after 2014 and 15, they went off and started showing up in places like Syria, where the, where the Russian government was doing things. Some people think they're part of the Wagner group, which we've heard of before. Um, you know, this mercenary group that does off the book stuff for, for the Russian government in places like Syria and Libya and the Central African Republic. Other people I've spoken to have said, no, they're probably actually rivals to Wagner. So I, I'm not sure whether they are part of Wagner or not. Um, it's interesting to see them to see them back. It's not clear who they're answering to, whether they're formally under the command structure of the Russian armed forces or they're formally under the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, which, let's be clear, is is ultimately under the control of Moscow. Um, but it's an it's an interesting kind of um, structural distinction. It also, of course, gives the lie um, to to Russia's claims that this is about denazification um, because they've. Um, they've never shown any qualms about about employing these kinds of guys. Well, we're on the topic of Russian troops, actually. Um, so uh, you reported yesterday that the Russian army is taking steps to avoid Ukrainian propaganda reaching soldiers. Um, could you tell us a bit more about this? And also, Francis, if you have any more to add on this, please come in. Yeah, the um, so it's a very intense propaganda war, um, which makes our job a little bit difficult so this was based on i should be clear and i tried to caveat it quite clearly in the story this is based on a claim by ukrainian military intelligence um which itself is heavily engaged in the propaganda war um so they claim for what it's worth to have got hold of a document uh issued by the deputy commander of the russia's western military district um in which it basically says um officers in several units Officers at all levels who have encountered resistance from their men uh, expressing dissatisfaction with the conduct of the, uh, they of course call it a special military operation in Ukraine. I never mentioned the word war. Um, and, and the upshot of this, 
uh, in this document is basically says right issuing an order take uh, pay more attention to your to your men's psychological moral condition um, and uh, restrict their access to the internet um, via their personal mobiles the implication seems to be take away their phones um, now the, the the Ukrainians of course crow about this and say look this means that um, you know it's 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 working kind of information we're putting out is getting through to russian soldiers um it does chime with other reports we've had i mean we've had um uh britain's gchq saying they've had you know signal intercept evidence of um of russians refusing orders or sabotaging their own vehicles because they don't want to um go into battle um i would emphasize that all of these claims and counterclaims um are part of the um, of the propaganda war, um, and the Ukrainians are going to make these claims about about Russian morale, as the as the Russians will. If you go on a pro-Russian Telegram channel or something, you'll always see um, videos of Ukrainian prisoners or Ukrainian corpses, all that kind of counter narrative. Um, but that uh, that that is one thing that, that that they're putting out at the moment. If I could just make one one comment on that, I think. Uh, we've spoken many times in this podcast about one of the great known unknowns, uh, which is the extent to which the Russian people um, are in, engaging with this propaganda war in, in the sense of believing what the Kremlin is pumping out, uh, is receiving information from the West and other things. I've been following this quite closely, and it would appear that something is occurring within the major cities and particularly in... in, in um, in the sort of more rural pro-Putin parts of, of Russia, which is a sort of besieged fortress mentality. What I mean by that is uh, it's a phenomenon that we see in war quite often, which is that peoples may well be critical of their leadership in their handling of conflicts, but they see it also as it's better the enemy that they know than the enemy they don't. Namely, it's better that, they're, that they are... are um, in support of their leaders, even if they're critical of their leaders, than, than foreign powers. And it would appear that there has been an adaptation as people are beginning to realise this is not a short military operation, that this is actually something far more existential and prolonged and protracted. Um, and as a consequence of that, they are now... Um, being perhaps more in support of the war than they were actually at the beginning as the sanctions are beginning to to hit. And as a consequence of that, I think that we are perhaps starting to see more of a um, consolidation of Putin's support within Russia, which clearly goes against what, what many in the West were hoping initially, which is that actually um, as the longer the war goes on, that, 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 that Russians' uh, capacity and desire to, uh, to resist... Um, uh, sort of Western sanctions would would decrease uh, as they begin to feel the pinch, but it would appear that the opposite is is, is taking place, and that is obviously um, something that we spoke about as being a potential risk of this podcast. Um, on this podcast, um, that that Russia would become more of a North Korea um, type situation where the will of the people hardens uh, anti the West uh, as as the doors are shut to it. Um, we hope that wouldn't be the case, but it would appear that there is some evidence that it is, and and that obviously will have big ramifications for how Putin handles this war in the coming weeks and and perhaps months. That's very interesting that you say that that's actually now been more support. Um, I think a lot of people would almost assume that there would be less because Russians, a lot of Russians, as we know, are really fed up 
um, having been able to kind of get some information across from the West. Um, Roland, do you agree with Francis's point? Yeah, I mean, people often ask me, like, well, what's happening in Russia? What, what, what are the Russians believing and things like that? And the truth is, I, 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 I lived in Russia until about five years ago. I'm not really as, you know, in the loop as I, as I was, but um, I, 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 kind of, I kind of have that sense as well. I mean, it's, th- there is a layer of society who's, who are very aware and have VPNs and, 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 and are appalled, frankly appalled by what is happening. Um, and then there are, there's a very large chunk of society who um, will have swallowed some of the propaganda that do not underestimate the power of this propaganda. Um, and also... You know, there, there is there is a rally around the flag effect when any country goes to war. It happens here. It happens anywhere else. Um, the country is at war. We're under attack. And that narrative, remember, I mean, that, that, that's been pushed for years, this idea that the West is out to get us. We're surrounded. Uh, we have to stand up to them. This is not something new that they're trying to kind of shovel, uh, you know, get the country behind overnight. They've been pushing that for a very long time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree that... that if there was a kind of expectation anywhere that you know the, the Russian people were going to see through the Kremlin's lies and, and, and rise up and overthrow the government, um, I don't see that happening um, in certainly not in the immediate future, even the, even even the medium term. But the, I mean, there are there are historic, interesting historic analogies. I mean, the, the war in Afghanistan, the Soviet war in Afghanistan in the eighties, rumbled on for the best part of a decade. Um, and it didn't itself bring down the Soviet Union, but it definitely contributed to, over the years, the sense of mistrust and, and disillusionment um, and, and so on and so forth. It, it is a slow burn, I think, this kind of thing. Earlier this week, I spoke to Sophia Yan, The Telegraph's China correspondent. Last time she was on the podcast, she explained that people in China weren't aware of what was going on, the influx of disinformation, and also that Xi Jinping was close to Putin. I started by asking Sophia what's happened since then. Well, the last time I was speaking about this, it was still really early days in, in terms of Russia's invasion into Ukraine, and China was working on figuring out how best to respond. Uh, Beijing kicked pretty quickly into gear, and what you've seen in the last couple of weeks is really a flurry of diplomacy, a lot of phone calls, significant meetings occurring between China and many other nations. So let me just run down this timeline. One day after Russia invaded Ukraine, Chinese leader Xi Jinping had a call with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Then on March 8th, he has a call with French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Ten days later, she has a call with Joe Biden. A week after that, on March 25th, she speaks with Boris Johnson. On that same exact day, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi lands in India for a surprise visit. This is the most high-level official visit to Delhi since tensions rose after border clashes in 2020. So this is this is an important one. And this is interesting because China and India often are at odds, but India actually abstained from the UN vote early on. Last Friday, April 1st, China and the EU held its first summit. It was virtual. This is the first time the two sides have met in more than two years. And then just this week, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi spoke with Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba. So in all of this, 
note that she has spoken with Putin, but still has had no engagement with his counterpart in Ukraine, with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. So it's really interesting. Clearly, China's trying to send messages out, trying to work on its global re reputation, trying to show up ties with the West in all of these meetings. Yeah, so that's obviously really, really significant now, because when you first spoke to us, it did not sound like um, anything like that was happening at all. Do you think, what do you think that means? Has, has China changed its, its stance or do you think it's just trying to protect its own interests? China's absolutely working to protect its own interests. Everything Beijing does is always in its national self-interest. So first, in all of these meetings, China's trying to continue messaging its apparent neutrality, even though obviously Beijing's actions and how Chinese state media, as we've discussed before, have portrayed the war in Ukraine, have trended on side with Russia, down to parroting Russian disinformation. I mean, you see the phrases sometimes word for word from what the Russians have said and what the Chinese are saying or what is in Chinese state media. It's also an attempt to massage various relationships to try to repair China's global reputation, which has suffered over its refusal to, down, to, to denounce Russia. Uh, it really amounts to a great deal of waffling. This is what we're observing in terms of this very checkered response out of Beijing. And the third thing that China's trying to do is really trying to keep on keeping on, attempting to do business as usual. This China-EU summit that was held last Friday, this is, again, the first time that the two sides have met in more than two years. But both were really talking past each other. Uh, the EU foreign affairs chief, Joseph Burrell, he described it as a, quote, dialogue of the deaf. He said, we could not talk about Ukraine a lot and we did not agree on anything else. China cannot pretend to be a great power, but close its eyes or cover its ears when it comes to a conflict that obviously makes it uncomfortable. So basically, China refused to talk about Ukraine and instead tried to focus on other issues, which at the moment the West doesn't want to focus on. Ties between the EU and China were already suffering, same with relations between China and the US and the UK. Uh, and with the EU, China's wanted to get this investment agreement back on track, but that got scuppered after coordinated Western sanctions against China over human rights concerns. Then China slapped the EU, uh, the US, others, the UK as well with counter sanctions. So ties were already on the rocks and China's trying to figure out a way to still build on that on those relations to try to improve things without dealing with the Ukraine issue, which of course right now is not something that many countries want to be thinking about. Right now, the war in Ukraine, it's a crisis that the world is facing each other. So the fact that China's talking past the West is a huge problem. And so it's really frustrating for those on the receiving end. You know, my understanding in speaking with sources is that and all these high level calls that she has held with leaders in the US, the UK, France and Germany, that China's continued to make clear that it's not going to come out publicly against Russia despite all the pressure to do so. Do you think that there will definitely be no sanctions then from China against Russia at all in the future, even if the West continues to pressure? Sanctions from China against Russia are really pretty unlikely. China and Russia have for years developed a strategic relationship. They're not allies in the Western sense, they're not buddy-buddy on and on everything, and they're not always going to stick their necks out for each other. But they are two authoritarian nations who really see eye to eye. They want to create a new international world order that is beneficial to them, one that's not led by the U.S. And so because of that, China's not going to uh, say that Russia's doing something terrible necessarily. And also you have to consider the fact that 
very likely from Xi Jinping's perspective, he's thinking the long-term strategy here. If China in the future wants to move on Taiwan, he's not going to want Putin to come out or whoever's in charge in Russia to come out and say that China shouldn't be doing that in uh, on Taiwan, right? There's a this sort of um, like a gentleman's agreement, shall we say, that he's relying on or hoping that he can bank on in the future. So if, if China's going to say or denounce Russia at this point and say that Moscow shouldn't be doing this, that it needs to pull out, uh, this is something that if the tables were turned, I mean, she's not going to want to deal with that sort of situation. So in that sense, um, what are the chances that Z could persuade Putin anyway? Can he influence him in terms of trying to either end the war or um, sort of just give in, give in to what the West want in, in some capacity? Do you think that's possible? This is a really interesting point to discuss. If any leader in the world could stand a chance at trying to get Putin to listen, it probably would be Xi Jinping. But that's a risk. Uh, first, Putin isn't going to want to appear weak, uh, you know, trying to bend at someone else's request. That's not likely to happen, right? He likes the strongman image, as does she himself. Uh, she, if he does that, that means he would be almost siding with the West, the democratic West, which goes against politically speaking, everything China believes in. And what if Putin didn't listen? Then Xi Jinping would look like a fool. So these are all challenges as to whether or not China would ever consider doing something like that. And again, this goes back to the point I made earlier about everything being in China's national self-interest. What good would it do China? In what way could it benefit China to do something like that? I mean, there are very few pros, really, to that question. Uh, So because of that, it's very unlikely that Xi Jinping would even give it a shot or even be entertaining the idea. What do you think he he would do? Because clearly um, the war in Ukraine uh, and and the sanctions from the West on China as well is not beneficial for Xi. So what can he do to influence Putin one way or what can he do to sort of make it easier for him? I think we're seeing that now. There's an attempt to try to have this holding pattern and to try to only talk about the issues that China wants to talk about without addressing the elephant in the room, which is obviously the war in Ukraine. Um, There are some ways that China could benefit. One big question is whether or not China would take this opportunity to snap up assets on the cheap, particularly energy resources. China is a country of 1.4 billion people. This is, you know, it takes a lot of oil and gas. It takes a lot of water. It takes a lot to keep this place running. And there was always a question of whether or not China would try to shore up energy resources with Russia at this moment when Russia is a little bit uh, on the down and out. Um, There's some exploration, it seems, of these possibilities by state-owned companies uh, in China, but so far nothing quite yet inked uh, for real. China seems to be really taking its time in terms of picking and choosing how it wants to uh, deal and respond to the situation at the moment. Russia is also turning to China for new suppliers on a range of items. Uh, you know, th- because of Western sanctions over Ukraine, uh, they've cut Russia out of global banking messaging systems, over international payment cards like Visa and MasterCard. Even Apple Pay has had to cut ties. So Russian banks, for instance, are scrambling for new options. And so they're exploring possibilities with Chinese companies. So in that sense, in the long term, this could mean that Russia becomes more reliant on China, which Moscow 
probably doesn't want, but this is the way the cards have been dealt. So this potentially gives China a free remit also to, to try to build on its relationship with Russia and increase its influence over Russia and maybe then also move in, and this is very long-term, to Central Asia to increase its influence there. I mean, those countries are, uh, were part of the Soviet Union. And so there's always been a tussle between China and Russia for power there. I mean, this is a chance potentially for China to gain more influence there. So that's the long term. So um, in that sense, then, what can we expect from the short term? Right now, from Beijing, this is a politically important year. Chinese leader Xi is, near the end of this year, going to try to sit for an unprecedented third term. He scrapped term limits. He could stay in power potentially indefinitely. So right now what China wants is absolute stability. They need political stability. But the economy is on the decline. Growth is an issue. It's, you know, the pandemic is still a concern. Shanghai, a city of 26 million, is under lockdown right now, as well as other parts of China. COVID is running rampant here. Uh, These are all major challenges. So right now, Beijing is going to probably try really, really hard to just keep everything as quiet as possible. That has something to do, likely, with all these meetings that China has had, these phone calls, just trying to at least have some engagement to a certain extent, because what they need right now is to ensure that nothing crazy, nothing crazier than what has already happened, happens because of this this power, to, uh, this, this situation where she wants to stay in power. I mean, he needs to make sure that he can do that and that this transition will happen smoothly. Um, just moving on, we've also got Joe Barnes, who is our Brussels correspondent. Hi, Joe. Um, in the light of Boris Johnson meeting Olaf Scholz this afternoon, uh, you've reported that Scholz is the main roadblock to increased sanctions. Do you see this shifting? Hello. Um, so there is, it's a, on when it comes to EU sanctions, there's a massively shifting landscape about how hard and how far some countries want to go. Um, there are some, the, the, the Poles, the Baltics, uh, those that actually have experience of kind of living close to kind of the Russian threat, uh, are willing basically to kind of bite their own nose off to uh, smite their, like spite their enemy. Uh, whereas those like Germany um, aren't willing to go as hard and as fast um, in punishing uh, Russia for the war in Ukraine. Um, so when we reported that Germany was the main roadblock, um, that was uh, the Polish Prime Minister Morawiecki uh, speaking, and he is basically one of the hard, the harder kind of nosed um, EU leaders when it comes to sanctions, and, and he is quite rightly frustrated with the Germans because they're blocking any serious kind of implications when it comes to gas uh, sanctions on Russian gas exports. But what what we have got now is we've got a EU ban on Russian coal exports, and that's going to come into play in 120 days. So basically EU countries have four months to get their kind of priorities and get their suppliers sorted out before that comes in. And what we will have next time the EU ramps up its sanctions is a, is likely a sanction on oil uh, exports, which the Germans were once opposed to, but now they have kind of seen what's happened in terms of these atrocities outside of Kiev. And now they're willing to actually go a bit harder and faster to, to basically ramp up pressure on on Moscow, on the Kremlin, to pull out and 
come to a peace arrangement. Um, so that's where we are on that. But what what we probably won't see anytime soon is gas, um, because that is more controversial. And the Germans have basically said it will plunge their economy into a steep recession if they are forced to turn off the taps there. Is it just Germany um, that that is doing this, or are there other European countries that are also reluctant? Um, publicly, we know that Hungary have also said they will veto a further ban on Russian uh, gas and oil. Um, and that is basically because uh, Budapest is seen as a, the closest capital to Moscow um, when it comes to wanting to form ties and Viktor Orban. He was personally praised by uh, Vladimir Putin after winning the election recently. And he's spoken out about having to basically work with Putin and yeah, form close bonds with him, business bonds with him. Just how reliant is the EU on Russian fuel and how much has the EU spent on Russian fuel with those countries in mind? So um, there was quite an interesting comment um, from Joseph Borrell, who's the EU's foreign affairs chief um, in the European Parliament earlier this week. And he, he, he said since the uh, invasion started on February the 24th, the EU had sent around 1 billion euros a day to Russia for energy payments um, and only had sent 1 billion in aid to Ukraine for weapons and other, other such assistance. So that kind of highlights the dependence of the EU on when it comes to kind of Russian hydrocarbons and basically what makes it difficult for the EU to kind of wean itself off of uh, these fuels that are funding um, Putin's war machine. So... Um, that's when, when you when you kind of break it down into figures like that, 35 times more money has been sent from the EU to Russia than it has been sent from the EU to Ukraine is uh, rather incredible. So, yeah, so the EU then is, is extremely reliant um, in that sense, although you have said um, that Germany potentially is going to go the other way. Um, but how realistic is a full embargo? Because... Um, Kiev yesterday called for a full embargo on Russian gas and oil. So how realistic is it really? It's hard to say um, at the moment. So the EU foreign ministers are likely to discuss the prospect of, a, of an oil ban um, when they meet next week in Brussels. But ramping that up to gas is, is going to be very tricky. So the EU imports 40% of its gas from Russia uh, and that number increases differently. So in, in Germany, for instance, about 50% of its gas comes comes from Russia. So these like, EU countries and the EU have said, uh, like like Britain and like the US, they're going to wean themselves off of Russian hydrocarbons over the next years. Germany's pledged to do it by mid-2024. But that prospect of like these short, sharp sanctions coming in um, on a full energy embargo are, are probably highly unlikely, just because when it comes to EU level, you need to have all 27 nations in acceptance of the, of the policy, basically. So you'll get some countries, uh, Poland, for instance, has like announced a unilateral um, ending of the use of Russian uh, fossil fuels. Uh, so Britain, not in the EU anymore, but has done very, very similar in this. There, there are other countries that are doing it themselves, but on an EU level, I think we're going to find it very hard to get um, an agreement when it comes to banning oil, gas and coal. Uh, Francis or Roland, do either of you have any points on this? Um, I would just comment on the, how remarkable it is that we've got the Chancellor of Europe's biggest economy coming to Britain 
um, and effectively the Prime Minister of Britain offering to reduce his dependence on Moscow's energy exports. I mean, it is quite a remarkable event and significant and quite humiliating, really, if you think about it in those terms. Um, I think it's just worth saying the and, and emphasizing the naivety of the of the German uh, response to Russia for the last twenty or more years. Effectively, I think the historians of the future will say that effectively it was one of the great geopolitical failures of of the late twentieth and early twenty first centuries. That this has by by being so reliant on Russian uh, fuel that Germany has effectively enabled a dictator on the European doorstep. And because be under be under no illusions, I don't think it would have been possible for Russia to have engaged militarily with Ukraine were he not were Putin not certain that he would be have this this reliable reliable source of income from from Germany and other European countries. It is a, a huge failure and has essentially restored elements of fascism to Europe. Um, of course, you can comment on whether that was predictable or not and the extent of the Russian uh, responsibility for that. But ultimately, it has been enabled by a German energy and security policy that has fundamentally failed. And we, there has to be a realignment um, as a consequence of that. There are signs that that is taking place, um, but the strength of German feeling amongst the elites seems to be weaker now than perhaps it was in the uh, following the initial shock of the invasion. Um, so it'll be very interesting to follow this, this longer term. Absolutely. Um, and I also think that kind of brings us on to the reaction of other EU leaders. Um, so today, uh, Ursula von der Leyen and Joseph Borrell are heading into Kiev. Um, what do you think is the significance of that, Francis, Roland or, or Joe? It's the first time a... So in the context of, of the world kind of stage, the EU leaders, so Ursula von der Leyen is given kind of a head of state uh, kind of role and she, she attends NATO summits, she attends G7 summits. Um so she's, this is a really big deal. This is this is essentially a, like a head of a country um, or head of 27 countries um, going into the Ukrainian capital to the Ukrainian president and kind of message uh, her support. So we, the European Parliament's president has recently been, but that's she's uh, Roberta Mansola, that she's kind of seen as a bit of a, a, a joke figure, not um, as much as a political heavyweight as what it would be as, say, for instance, a Boris Johnson or a Joe Biden or in this case, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, going to kind of, yeah, share some warm words and voice some support. And they, they've gone in today with a message that the EU is going to agree to another 500 million euros in funding for kind of Ukrainian weapons and helping the armed forces in their fight against the Russians. Francis? Um, just whilst we're on the subject of international um, uh, relationships with, with, with Russia, it was very noteworthy yesterday that the UN General Assembly voted to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council. Um, symbolic more than, than anything else, I think, um, that the, the Human Rights Council has been dismissed um, for, for, for many months now as being largely a, a, a joke when you have the Iranians appearing on it who are involved in such uh, um, suppressive measures in their own country. Um, but uh, it's, it's so it's less interesting for the significance of Russia being suspended.
extended and more for, for those who voted against suspension and also for um, abstaining. So against abstention was higher in the, the, than, than um, sorry, it was, 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 was much higher than it was in following the initial um, uh, invasion. So whilst 93 members voted in favour of Russia's suspension, um, there were 58 abstentions and 24 that voted against. Amongst those that voted against... You had, um, obviously, Russia, North Korea, Iran, Algeria, China, um, very significantly, Kazakhstan and Syria, uh, Vietnam too. But amongst the abstentions, I would say, are more concerning. So you have India, Pakistan, Qatar, um, many African nations, Brazil. These would not be countries that you would necessarily predict um, as appearing um, on that list. And the fact that, it, they, that they are there is, I think, something very concerning for the long-term geopolitical um, realignment that is taking place against West and East. Um, so I just wanted to draw attention to that because I think it will be very, very relevant considering matters long-term. Roland? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, I think um, it, it, this, you know, like I have, I worked quite a bit in, in South Africa over the past few years and, you know, I've had colleagues like sending me the kind of stuff that's showing up, um, the kind of narrative down there I and mean, quite kind of sympathetic to the Russian point of view to the point I'm like kind of, you know, my jaw hits the floor and say, well, that's not true and that's not true and that's not true. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think there's definitely um, a case to be made for the West to wake up to um, attitudes outside of the West, um, wake up to the fact that Russia is... That, Russia is a global power with global reach that has the capacity to launch a land war in Europe. Um, and going back to the point about, you know, German naivety, um, I think the Germans probably have been a bit naive, but um, they are not alone. Look, I mean, Britain is in the kind of somewhat comfortable position there of being able to say, well, we don't take that much Russian gas. No, but we've taken a lot of their money. And um, if you speak to, you know, kind of diplomats from the Baltic states, Poland, places like that, real dismay at the complacency that the British establishment has shown um, about those issues over over several years. Um, I think one, one, one of the big challenges of this crisis is for, um, you know, Western governments to kind of, I think, wake up and get serious about the way the world is, quite honestly. Uh, just put it blunt. I mean, that sound that sounds quite kind of, you know, man in the pubish. But I, I think I think it almost boils down to that. Francis, um, you've actually been in Paris recently. Um, did you? What do you think about um, France's reaction? Uh, since we're talking about leaders, um, and was there anything about sort of feelings on the ground as well about people you spoke to? Yes, so I've just returned from Paris for a four-day trip there and um, spoke to several senior journalists out there as well, uh, as well as just talking to people and, and, and noting the feelings on the ground. Um, so the election is this Sunday of the first round, and it is expected that as a consequence of that, Emmanuel Macron, the current incumbent, um, will obviously be going through to the, to the next round. And it's expected that uh, Marine Le Pen, who, is, uh, his, who was his rival in the last election, will be the, uh, his other uh, rival in the second round. 
Um, the significance, I think, of this vote can't be underestimated in terms of the impact that this will have potentially on Europe, um, because Macron is clearly has been trying to be the bridge between Russia and the European Union powers. Um, he was, of course, going to Putin until the really the final hours of the war and since um, uh, to try and persuade Putin not to not to invade. He obviously failed in that. We've been very critical here in Britain of, of Macron's naivety in doing so. But actually, interestingly, talking to journalists on the ground, they were saying that it's actually played quite well in France, not only because it clearly appears that, 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 that Macron was, was, was assuming a role that other um, European leaders had not done, but also um, because there is a sort of deep-rooted... Uh, um, uh, feeling in, in, in France that they are already a sort of second-rate power due to their experiences in the 20th century. And so naturally they are trying to re-establish some of, of Germany, um, sorry, some of France's prominence on the, on, on, on the, common, uh, on the continent, particularly um, given um, Britain's uh, decision to leave the European Union that obviously filled some space there um, that France feels that it can, can now assume in terms of the leadership. Although, ironically, of course, Britain has arguably had a much firmer and, and more successful policy towards the Ukraine crisis than uh, than France has. Um, so th- that's that's bit that's quite interesting, I think. Um, but the reason this is another reason this is so significant is, of course, Marine Le Pen has in the past been um, more favourable, I would say, towards Vladimir Putin in the way that sort of some right wing political figures across Europe, including in Britain, have have. Um, she has praised his um, uh, sort of consistency at home on, on, on putting his own nation first, his criticism of, um, I suppose we would articulate it as sort of the woke far left agenda um, and things like that. Um, and so one could argue, as some commentators have, that actually the two most significant events that are taking place this week are the one, from the, at least from the perspective of Vladimir Putin, is one, what's taking place in the Donbass and whether he can have military successes there before May 9th, which is the military parade traditionally in Russia, but also the French election. Because if Marine Le Pen were able to cause an upset, then clearly that would um, be more favourable to Putin than perhaps uh, Macron being there. Um, so that's very important important. Um, uh, as well, just, I think on the energy point, it's worth saying that, that France has not made the scale of the mistakes that, that Germany has. They are not as reliant on Russian gas. Um, but they, and they've continued a policy of, of nuclear, nuclear power plants, um, which Germany stopped after the Fukushima incident several years ago. So they are not as reliant on, 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 on Russian oil and gas, um, although they are still paying for some. Um, but they have other ties with, with Russia that are, that are longer term, which, of course, is why Macron is doing this. So it's all going to be a very, very significant month, this, for not only for France, um, but also for um, for what its implications of that election will have on um, on 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 Europe generally and and on the Ukraine on the Ukraine crisis. Um, and one just last comment that, that's very much anecdotal um, from from my own perspective. But I was just walking around Paris and I assumed that um, what what they have in Paris is something that's, that you don't have here in Britain, which is um, sort of particular, uh, I suppose poster places, places where posters relating to the election are posted and are put up um, by the candidates. And I 
predicted rather naively that you would expect to perhaps see Macron in Paris having his posters untouched and perhaps see Eric Zemmour's, the far-right candidates, and Marine Le Pen's posters torn down. Um, but actually, it was very consistent. What you would see walking around is that either all of the posters would be up or all of them would be torn down. Um, it wasn't as if one candidate over another seemed to be more hated or more vilified in, in the areas in which I was walking around. And I, and I thought that would not be the case here. And perhaps it just speaks to the fact that the cost of living crisis that is being affected in Paris which is beca- and, 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 and the wider France, which, which has, um, has been really the fundamental issue of this election, clearly... Um, has not led to uh, Marine Le Pen being um, vilified as she has in previous elections. And that that is potentially significant. So um, there could well be an upset in France, but but it would be a real upset because I think most most people think that Macron will will pull it off. But so that would be, I'd say, the lay of the land in, in France as it is at this moment. But things can change, obviously, very, very quickly. Thank you so much, Francis. Um, just moving on as we're, we're heading towards the end now, uh, we do have a question from a listener, Cathy, um, and I'm just going to read it out. So she says, in today's Telegraph, there's a story describing the forced conscription of Ukrainian men into the Russian army. Apart from the obvious horror of this, I'm wondering if this is a good strategy by Russia. Wouldn't conscripted soldiers try to sabotage equipment and lower the morale of Russian soldiers by telling them the truth of the invasion? Uh, Do you have anything to add on this? Uh, How is you? Roland, let's go for you. Uh, yes, I was just listening to a briefing by um, the governor of the Ukrainian governor of Donbass, Ukrainian-controlled Donbass, just before I came on here, and he was saying the same thing. He was saying there's reports of, especially from Mariupol, um, uh, the Ukraine, the Russians have been trying to like force civilians who want to leave Mariupol to go to, um, you know, either the the so-called Donetsk People's Republic or to Russia, rather than let them go towards Ukrainian territory. And men in particular, and he said we have, he said the Ukrainians. Uh, law enforcement um, has m- noted multiple, confirmed multiple cases of this of men being forcibly drafted. Um, he didn't say into the regular Russian military, into the formations of the so-called Donetsk um, People's Republic. Um, I, you know, it, it, it speaks to a number of things. One is perhaps a shortage of manpower. You need people. Um, that is not that unusual in a in a in a European land war to forcibly conscript people or try to conscript people who might have some kind of sympathy for your cause um, anyway I wouldn't actually exclude that I, mean, I, I know Mariupol quite well um, and definitely um, the the initial kind of pro-Russian sentiment that was there in 2014 had definitely kind of died down over the years and most of those people had left but I wouldn't exclude there are a few people who you know harbour some kind of sympathy um, and might have joined up certainly the, I mean the Ukrainians themselves um I think I think uh, recently um, announced that they're arming, you know, Russian prisoners of war who've, who've, who've agreed to change sides. Um, so that can hand, kind of happen. The third thing um, about them being recruited into the armed forces of the Donetsk People's Republic, um, these guys are reportedly being used as cannon fodder. It, it, it's pretty grim. Um, the, the so-called DNR army... Um, made of volunteers and, and recently conscripted men, poorly trained, poorly equipped, and according to the reports that I understand, kind of thrown into battle almost almost literally as cannon fodder. It's not um, it's not a formation you want to be in. It does paint quite a grim picture. Uh, Francis or Joe, do you have thoughts as well? Um, yeah, I, just, I think on this it kind of 
does it, it paints a picture of how far the Russians are willing to go. And the kind of these stories coming out of Ukraine are really helpful because it helped kind of put pressure on Western leaders and they kind of to actually see the reality because to some that they have turned a blind eye to it. What like there's there's lots of questions around kind of hawkish member states who are like keen on security. Why didn't the EU or the UK or the US move ahead with sanctions before the invasion? Why why wasn't there a deterrent um, to basically stop Putin from crossing the border? So it's stories like this and the stories we um, and the videos and pictures we saw in in Butcher um, that actually kind of forced the EU um, to move, forced other Western leaders to say, okay, we need to send more support to. Ukraine. We need to send more support to Zelensky. We we need to crack down harder on on kind of Russian money and Russian influence in in the West. Um, so all of these stories coming out are actually really quite helpful for the Ukrainian causes as such because just because it does kind of actually wake people up to the the quite grim reality that we have a a, a major conflict on our on our continent for the first time in in, in decades. I would only add, Alice, that. Um... It's, I think, again, speaks to the dire straits as well that the Russian army is in. You don't have conscripts that, for the reasons that our listener has highlighted, you don't have conscripts in an army unless you can absolutely help it from a foreign country. Um, but noteworthy, I think, that both the Germans and the Russians did that during the Second World War when, uh, you know, they, they were both under serious threat. Um, it just speaks to me of, of a sort of desperation, really, because there are so many risks attached to it. Thank you so much for those thoughts. And also thank you, Cathy, for your question. Uh, we do really encourage questions on this podcast. And if you want to ask a question, just email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. So just before we wrap up, um, do you have any final thoughts on what we've discussed about the, today's attack in the Donbass and also any EU diplomacy? Uh, let's start with Joe. Um, so my my, my... Final thoughts is the the EU is is moving and it and it and it's it's not particularly keen as being um, as a as a whole entity a whole organisation it, it's not keen on being seen as um so, being seen as soft on Russia at the moment especially as as kind of these like really graphic and kind of horrifying and heinous uh, heinous uh, atrocities are unmasked um, so we are going to see more movement and we will see a, a, a sixth package of sanctions which will come up soon and and i do think they will slowly move towards cutting out russian energy uh, products uh, so gas oil and coal eventually but it's it's, it's going to be a, a quite a, an internal battle but you would think that a kind of good will prevail over evil eventually roland um I mean, two things. One is, I mean, on, on that question of, of health, I mean, I saw this morning that it's now confirmed that Slovakia, I think, has sent S-300 air defences, um, I think. Um, I saw on Twitter just before this started. If that's true, that means Europe is finally providing the thing the Ukrainians have been begging for, which is high-altitude, um, medium-altitude air defence, close the skies. Um, and remember, the message from the Ukrainians is, we need this now. We do not have time for you to sit around umming and ahhing and deciding what's politically expedient and, oh, well, we need consensus here or a 27-country block. The message from the Ukrainians is there is going to be an absolutely enormous pivotal battle for the Donbass region. Um, you know, we're talking about something on the scale of, you know, the Battle of Kursk in 1943 or something. I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's the kind of message we're getting about what's going to happen there in the next couple of weeks. Um, and the Ukrainians are absolutely begging for hardware more weapons, more ammunition now um, to tip the battle. And that battle, actually, 
I mean, it, what we were saying about, you know, kind of recruiting prisoners of war and things like this um, and the desperation that reflects this, ba- this battle, this war is existential for Ukraine. I think it is also existential for uh, Vladimir Putin's regime. I think if he loses this war, and there are lots of ways in which he can sell a kind of partial defeat as a victory and so on and so forth. It's not clear cut. But if he suffers a genuine, heavy, serious defeat that he can't really sell, then he's in trouble um, and he's going to fight very hard. So things are going to get much worse and much more violent, I think, before they get better. Thank you, Roland. And Francis? Um, we haven't spoken about NATO today. And I think it's, I just will point listeners to an interesting article in The Atlantic by former President Bill Clinton. Um, we've spoken previously on this podcast that one of the main charges against the West has been about NATO expansion um, into the former Soviet territories after um, the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s. And President Clinton writes really a defense of his his policy um, on NATO expansion, obviously not into Ukraine, but into the many other countries that, that surrounded it. Um, and I thought there's some very interesting um, thoughts in it that, that are worth reflecting on. So he comments on the fact that he met with Yeltsin 18 times when he was president and Putin five times. And that those were just three short of the entire U.S.-U.S. leaders meetings, um, sorry, U.S.-U.S.S.R. leaders meetings from 1943 to, to 1991. So he argues that this idea that Russia was somehow ignored or disrespected or tried to forcibly be isolated from the international community is not true. And he, indeed, he actually um, spoke about Putin about uh, to Putin about uh, bringing Russia potentially into NATO. So that's an interesting point. And, uh, but another quote that he makes in the article is from uh, Anna Applebaum. And I think this is just a thoughtful point in which to finish, that if NATO perhaps had not expanded into some of these former Soviet territories, then the battle that we're seeing currently taking place in Ukraine may well be taking place in East Germany right now that already there would have been an attempt to steamroller through uh, those countries um, and to to rebuild either the former Soviet Union or um, part of this uh, imperialist sort of Tsarist Russia that we know that that, that Putin idolises so much. The very fact that we we did expand NATO has meant that he has only had one option in which he can try and achieve such an expansion, and that is in the Ukraine. So um, I just think it's a thought-provoking article um, in which I would point people um, to because one reads it and immediately thinks, actually, yes, this this is an interesting point that, that as many as much as one can criticise the policy on on of, of, of Western expansion, there's many other arguments why it's actually been a good thing. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us, like Kathy, by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells, Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe.